start by reading, uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the, the Paul's letter to the Romans, and I just want to read the first 17 verses. Those of you who know anything about Luther will know that Romans 1.17 was, uh, certainly as he looked back on his life later on, critical for his theological development. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As I mentioned, I want to spend this first uh, hour reflecting on the life, or the early life at least, of Martin Luther. question comes up immediately, of course, why focus on Luther? And the answer is relatively straightforward. Uh, Luther is the single most important reformer. Uh, the events of Luther's life, aspects of his thought, really set the trajectory for much of the Reformation. Even those reformers who come to reject his thinking in important aspects, such as Zwingli, even John Calvin, uh, yet have much of their agenda shaped by the insights and the concerns of Martin Luther. So, if you're a Protestant here today, if you're an evangelical here today, at some point you will have been influenced by Martin Luther, maybe without even knowing it. And that makes it important, I think, for us to know something about the man's life. Now, I'm going to throw something out uh, up front that I'm not going to talk about in the lectures, but if you wish to ask me about it uh, during the Q&A, maybe this afternoon, I'll be happy to address it. One of the things that almost everybody these, these days knows about Martin Luther is that he hated the Jews. And that's a significant black mark against him, and because he was a German although there wasn't a Germany in Martin Luther's day, but because he was a German speaker from a territory that later became part of greater Germany, uh, that has taken on sinister significance, of course, given the events in Germany between 1933 and 1945 in the 20th century. So I want to put that out up front and say I certainly don't want to advocate for everything that Luther says. And many times when I speak on Martin Luther, the first question I get in the Q&A session is, but didn't he hate the Jews and doesn't that really lead to a discrediting of all of his thought. 
If you're interested in probing that further, please ask me about it during the Q&A session. I think I have an answer that will, if not allay concerns, at least help put the concerns in context. But Luther's writing against the Jews come in the 1540s. He was born in 1483 in a place called Eisleben in Germany. And in 1484, his family moved to Mansfeld. Luther's family background is, is interesting. It reflects the, the pattern of the times. His father uh, was the oldest son of the family, and according to a German or uh, imp, uh, Saxon inheritance laws at the time, he was not able to inherit the family farm. Uh, I guess it was a way of protecting younger children. Luther's father therefore had to go off and make his own way in the world, and he became a miner. And uh, because he was very conscientious and competent as a miner, he rose to become the owner of a mine. And like many people before him who started off as, we might say, a working class person and grew, uh, made the transition to being a middle class person, he had great ambitions for his son. He wanted his son to become a lawyer. I usually throw in a few gratuitously offensive lawyer jokes at this point. I'll spare you those uh, this morning. But anyway, his father wants Luther to become a lawyer. And so in 1501, Martin Luther matriculates at the University of Erfurt and starts his education, preparing him for a career at law. But in 1505, he's been home visiting his parents and he's returning to the university. And he's walking uh, across country and he's caught in the middle of a violent thunderstorm and a thunderbolt comes crashing down at his side and throws him flat on his face. Uh, I've nearly been hit by lightning twice in my life. If I keep going out in thunderstorms sooner or later I think you know they're getting closer and closer. Uh, but to be, to be standing by a lightning bolt when it hits the ground is a singularly terrifying experience. Uh, it's like having an earthquake and it's, it's over before you even realize what's happened. The, the sort of a blue all I remember is like a blue pillow. It seemed to be about four foot wide, appearing about uh, 20 yards ahead of me. Uh, a violent explosion, and then it was over. Of course, I know that thunderbolts are caused by, or at least I'm told, and I trust the people who tell me that thunderbolts are caused by uh, an electrical imbalance in the upper atmosphere. Ice crystals crashing together creates like a giant spark that finds its way down to Earth. That's because I'm a modern person. I live in a more scientific world. If I was Martin Luther in the 16th century, nearly hit by a lightning bolt, how do I interpret that? I interpret it as an act of God. We still have that, I think, on insurance policies. Certainly in the UK, I guess it's probably the same here. If your house is hit by a bolt of lightning, I think legally, it's probably an act of God. Uh, and you make an insurance claim under the sort of the act of God clause in your insurance policy. Uh, it's a linguistic vestige of the understanding of an earlier period. When Luther is nearly killed by a bolt of lightning, he thinks he's come under the judgment of God. That's absolutely terrifying to him. And he cries out, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. St. Anne was the patron saint of minors. So Luther is no doubt drawing on the piety of his minor family background at this particular moment. And within a very few days of this incident, Luther has abandoned his uh, training to become a lawyer and joined the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. His father is absolutely furious. His father wanted his son 
to go on to have a lucrative career at law. His son's abandoned that and he's joined a, a monastery. And uh, in the medieval uh, church, uh, you didn't just join a monastery. Monasteries belonged to particular orders. There'd be a Franciscan order and a Dominican order and an Augustinian order of monks. And the Augustinians were some of the least important and prestigious monks out there. So it's not even as if his son is abandoning a career at law to join a prestigious religious order, like the Dominicans or the Franciscans. He's joining a, a bunch of sort of B-listers or even C-listers. For Luther's father, it would be the equivalent today of finding out that your, your child, your son or your daughter had got a full-ride scholarship to an Ivy League institution and was throwing it all in to go to the local community college. Not there's anything wrong with local community colleges, but most parents would see you know, a free ride to a big university as setting their child up for a much better future and career. So Luther's father is uh, pretty uh, upset with his move. Luther uh, is, I say, he joins the Augustinian monastery in 1505. He's ordained in 1507, and this is important for understanding the Reformation. A lot of people think of the, the Reformation as just a bunch of ivory tower professors or academics knocking ideas around in lecture theatres. Luther is ordained in 1507. What that means is he's a pastor. So he's just not, he's just not enjoying some contemplative monastic existence. He's not just studying books. He's involved in pastoring ordinary people. And as we shall see in a few minutes, the Reformation crisis is precipitated by the pastoral needs of Luther's people. The Reformation is, uh, in its origin, a very practical pastoral uh, revolution. It is deeply rooted in the everyday lives of ordinary people. And Luther's ordination as a priest is part and parcel of that. When Luther hits the headlines in 1517, it's because he sees his people being exploited. He said much more radical theological things before October 1517, when he nails the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, and nobody's paid a blind bit of attention, because it doesn't really matter what goes on in a university lecture theatre. It matters, though, when that starts spilling over and hitting the finances of the church. And that's when Luther will become a controversial figure. In 1508, he's transferred to the town of Wittenberg, where he becomes a professor. And with, with a, a couple of brief uh, interludes, he will remain in Wittenberg for the rest of his life. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go on a Reformation tour... Wittenberg is, should be one of the places you visit. It's a, it's a very tiny town, even today. It's like one main street uh, with a castle at one end and the Augustinian monastery at the other. And Luther's uh, whole life in some ways should have been spent between those two, those two points. So Luther becomes a professor at Wittenberg. In 1510, he goes on a trip to Rome. And he gets his first exposure to the institution in all of its magnificence, the Roman church. And he is, uh, I don't know, how many of you, have any of you ever visited Rome? How many of you have been to Rome? It's an amazing city, isn't it? I mean, it's stunning. Uh, I, I went there, I had the pleasure of going there five or six years ago, and when I walked into St. Peter's Square, 
I realize why people become Catholics. Because you walk in on the colonnades. The architecture is not incidental. The colonnades are like two great arms welcoming you home. Uh, I had the similar... It's when you, I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. But I, maybe I'm weird, but I stood on the edge of Niagara Falls and looked at the water going over the edge. And part of me wanted to jump in. <laughs> because you just want to feel the power pulling you away. I know it would be fatal. Uh, but you go to Rome and you feel the pull of the church. It's, it's overwhelming in its magnificence. And you walk through the doors of St. Peter's and uh, there's the Pieta by uh, Michelangelo, uh, the amazing sculpture of uh, Mary uh, cradling Christ in her arms after he's come down from the cross. And, uh, you know, he was, I think he was 23 when he carved that. And he lived into his 70s or 80s. Um, you know, what were you doing when you were 23? you probably weren't producing one of the greatest pieces of Western Renaissance art. That's what Michelangelo was doing at 23. It's a stunning city. It has, a, you know, it has an emotional impact because of its incredible, lavish beauty. And Luther felt the same. When Luther arrives, he is, he is overwhelmed by the magnificence he sees. Clearly, uh, St. Peter's is is underway when Luther goes there. It's not a completed project at that point. But he's overwhelmed by the city. And he's overwhelmed in a positive and a negative way. Positively, he's overwhelmed by the, the possibilities for piety there. All of the great relics that have been gathered in Rome. You know, you can walk up the steps of the... Uh, am I... Is, is it me that's causing it? Or... You can walk up the steps to the upper room. Uh, they, they're in Rome at that point. Uh, he's overwhelmed by the, the relics of the church. But he's also shocked by the corruption he sees. Uh, the waste, the overindulgence of the church authorities. And Luther's vision of Rome is really fixed in 1510, I think. What he sees there will, is burned into his mind in a way that never leaves him. We now need to think about two strands of, of Luther's life that will, will come together in a dramatic way. There is, the, there is the strand that deals with Luther as an individual and is the strand that deals with Europe or the Holy Roman Empire on a much bigger scale. Luther as an individual is a monk with a peculiarly acute conscience. The burning question for him is, where can I find a gracious God? When Luther celebrates his first Mass in 1507, you know what happens at Mass when the priest pronounces the words of institution? The bread and the wine become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the priest is, is literally touching the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This precipitates a, 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 a virtual nervous breakdown in Luther. He knows that he's an unrighteous man. He knows that he cannot stand before God as righteous, yet as he pronounces these words of institution, he makes God. And the question that comes to him is, how can I, as an unrighteous and sinful man, how can I touch God and survive? I need to know how God can be gracious to me, how I can get through this without God striking me dead. And this uh, question of where I can find a gracious God becomes... A, a burning matter for Luther. And we'll see in the second lecture how this really shapes Protestant understanding of preaching. If you think that you come to, to church on a Sunday 
to hear the Bible explained and to learn about God, that is not Luther's understanding of preaching at all. That is not Luther's understanding of preaching at all. Luther says you come to church to meet God as he's made himself gracious towards you. Luther is wrestling then with how do I find a gracious God? And he's taught this, uh, this system by his medieval masters. There are various answers in the medieval church and they tend to be taught by you know, different schools, teach different answers. And Luther's taught this, that God is so all-powerful that he is able to forgive somebody by a mere act of his will, if he so wishes. But because that would lead to unfortunate moral consequences, you know, people would just go off and behave in any way they wished, God has applied conditions to him making that declaration. And the condition is essentially that the, the individual does their best. Do your best and God will put you into a state of grace. It's a brilliantly uh, individual and tailored approach, isn't it? Because, you know, Patrick's best and my best might be different. Uh, he's a Baptist, so clearly he's slightly less godly than a Presbyterian. <laughs> but God, being merciful, would take that into account and would therefore, you know, Patrick's best might be, you know, getting up at six in the morning and helping 11 old ladies across the road. You know, take a silly example. Uh, for me, being a more godly Presbyterian, maybe I've got to show 15 old ladies across the road. Maybe that's my good works for the day. But you see, the idea is if you do your best, God will treat you well. God will be gracious towards you. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, we have um, you know, the example, uh, it's actually an example used at the time of, of, of lead coins. We could use paper currency now. If I had uh, uh, a $10 bill in my pocket, I could pull it out and say, you know, what's it worth? And you'd say, well, it's worth $10. And I'd say, really? How much did it cost to produce? You know, it's a, it's a fraction of a penny to produce. Intrinsically, it's just a piece of paper with some ink splashed on it. If I had a $10 bill and a $1 bill, intrinsically, they're worth the same. I'm guessing they cost the same to produce. But in actual fact, you know, the, the government denominates a certain value. It says, this piece of paper with this pattern on it will be worth so much in terms of goods, or if we're on the gold stand, in terms of so much gold. This piece of paper with this pattern of ink on it will be worth a different amount. That's kind of what this medieval God is doing with good works. That uh, what, what you do is not intrinsically worth anything at all. But God has said, if you're doing your best, I will make it worth grace. Seems like a great solution because it's tailored to the individual. The problem Luther has, well, uh, initially he, he gets driven to greater and greater heights of doing good works. Because if you think about it, how can you ever know you've done your best? Patrick gets up at six in the morning and he shows 12 old ladies across the road. That's great. That's very worthwhile. But then the next day he discovers there was a 13th old lady who was there before or came along after. And if he got up a bit earlier or stayed a bit later, he could have helped that lady across the road. Maybe that would have been his best. So he falls at that hurdle. Luther finds that how, the more hard he works, the more sure he is that he's not done his best. The certain problem that Luther has is he's a professor of theology, and professors of theology have certain tasks. And one of the tasks of a medieval professor of theology is 
He has to lecture through the Bible. It's a myth, it's a Protestant myth that uh, uh, the, the medieval Catholic Church paid no attention to the Bible. It certainly did. Uh, they typically used the Vulgate Bible, the Latin text, rather than the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, but the average, uh, the typical professor at a seminary in the United States today will have lectured and preached through far less of the Bible than even a very, very run-of-the-mill medieval professor would have done. These men were very familiar with their Bibles. Luther has to preach through the Bible, and he's preaching through Romans in 1515 to 1516, and he finds his understanding of sin being changed in a way that I think is very important for us today. Luther had been taught that sin was a weakness, a wound. It's like a piece of tinder that could catch fire when placed in the wrong, uh, when, you, when you find yourself in the wrong circumstances. Think about it. How you think about sin will really impact how you think about salvation. Because if Christ is the answer to sin, then how you understand sin will really shape how you understand the work of Christ or how you understand the human dilemma. If you're wounded, you need to be healed. If you are a piece of dry tinder, then you need to be sort of damped. There's a process involved. A process. Luther becomes convinced, though, that Paul does not teach that sin is a wound. He becomes convinced that Paul teaches that sin is a status, the status of death. Now, think about it. That's a very important move. You know, if you go to your doctor and you're, you're wounded or injured or you're ill, he'll give you some medicine that will slowly but surely make you better. If you're dead, there is no process. There is no, there is no middle term between death and life. You're either dead or you're alive. Uh, after Monty Python's already been mentioned to me once, say, I don't know what, Americans, are, you guys love Monty Python. Whenever I meet an American, it's not very long before they say, do you like Monty Python? After Monty Python finished, Michael Palin, one of the team, went on to, to do a short series of uh, uh, comedy uh, programs called Ripping Yarns. They're really very English, I think, in, in their humor. But in one of these Ripping Yarns, Michael Palin plays this bank clerk who's kidnapped by an armed robber. And uh, the robber takes him into the woods and he puts his gun into Michael Palin's face and he says, now I'm going to kill you. And Michael Palin says, what? Completely? <laughs> and everybody laughs. Why do they laugh? Because death is complete. Death is complete. It's not now I'm going to injure you. Oh, how badly are you going to injure me? I'm going to kill you. There is only one status of death. I remember at university, uh, uh, a professor whose favorite line when, when you handed in a bad essay was to hand it back and say, gentlemen, I revive, I do not resurrect. <laughs> and the point he was making was, you know, you guys are dead. There's nothing I can do for you. You're dead. It's not that I've got material to work with here. You know, you don't need to be, be revived. You need to be resurrected at this point. And this, of course, exacerbates Luther's problem no end. Because if sin is not a wound, then sin is death. And if sin is death, the question is not, what do I have to do 
to get right with God. One becomes totally passive in that process. What does the dead man lying on the slab in the hospital have to do to come back to life? Something like goes into cardiac arrest in the hospital. What does he have to do to come back to life? There's nothing he can do. Nothing he can do. He depends upon the doctors to use the defibrillator. Somebody else has got to bring him back from the dead. So Luther's whole world, if you like, comes crashing down. He can't know that he's done his best, and then he comes to realize that, well, I'm dead in my sins anyway. I don't need a process. I need a translation of status at this point. Where does the answer lie? And the answer comes for Luther in Christ. Only God himself taking the initiative, entering into human existence in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, plunging into death and coming back in resurrection, only that is sufficient to deal with the problem of sin. And in that process, human beings are entirely passive. So the burning question for Luther then becomes not where can I find a gracious God, but where can I find Christ? How can I become identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection so that I might overcome the problem here and now, the fact that I am dead in sins, and at the end of time may overcome the problem of the fact that my physical body is going to give way at some point, and I'm going to need physical resurrection to stand before God for all eternity. That's what we'll, we'll address some more of that in the, in the second session, but that's why preaching is important, because preaching is one of the ways in which human beings are confronted with the incarnate Christ. That's the Reformation position on preaching. So that's theologically what's going on in, in Luther's world at this point. The, his understanding of Christ actually turns his whole understanding of theology on its head. He comes to focus uh, in the years after 1517 on the cross of Christ as a fundamental revelation of who God is. If you want to know what power is for Luther, you look to the cross of Christ. How does one overcome death? One overcomes death by going through death. For Luther, for example, the second thief on the cross would be an important figure. When you think of the account in the Gospel of Luke of the crucifixion of Christ, and you have these uh, four reactions to the cross that day. You have the soldiers, you have the religious leaders, you have the first thief and you have the second thief. The first three reactions are all essentially variations on the same theme. If you are the king of the Jews, if you are the Messiah, if you are the one who claims to be sovereign over death, come down off the cross. Triumph over death by dodging death. The second thief says what? Today, uh, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think of the significance of what the second thief says. The second thief understands that the overcoming of death by Christ is achieved by Christ going through death. Death is the gateway to paradise. And for Luther, that plays out in two ways. The way to paradise here and now, the way to freedom from sin here and now, is to die to self. To throw oneself unconditionally upon the mercy of God to realize that there's nothing one can do to merit God's grace. One has to look to Christ to do it all for one. Secondly, it has profound pastoral implications for Luther. 
Suffering is not a good thing. Luther's theology does not teach that suffering is a good thing. But suffering is overcome and subverted for the greater good of the individual in the kingdom. We're all going to die. That's a terrible thing. It should never have happened. Death is a function of a fallen universe. But the good news is that that death itself has been subverted through Christ to make it the gateway to paradise. So this is the sort of the rich theology that's developing in Luther's mind at this particular moment in time. But there are events. How does this become significant for us? Why does this become the Reformation? great thing about the medieval church is it's very flexible. You can believe a whole lot of stuff. And nobody really cares, providing you're not rocking the boat. Luther would never have been heard of if it hadn't been for events taking place in the wider European scene. A little bit of background. You need to understand a little bit of medieval Catholic piety at this point. Medieval Catholicism held that there were three places one could go after you died. There was hell, there was heaven, and there was purgatory place in between. It was developed as an idea in the early church because people couldn't understand how anybody could be good enough to go straight to heaven when they died. So purgatory became the sort of place where you'd go to be cleaned up, if you like, before you finally made it to heaven. By the time we get to the late Middle Ages, the changing of purgatory has changed a bit. It's become linked to the penitential system of the church. Doing penance here and now can help relative to purgatory and indeed can help relative to people who are struggling in purgatory. And the church also developed the notion of an indulgence. What is an indulgence? Well, we heard about it probably from the 95 Theses Against Indulgences that Martin Luther writes in October 1517. An indulgence is simply a piece of paper. It's a certificate given by the church to somebody who's bought it, paid the church to buy an indulgence, and the indulgence gets you or a loved one certain period of purgatory. And, you know, don't think about purgatory. You don't go to purgatory for sort of two weeks to be cleaned up. You go for tens or hundreds of thousands of years. The church taught that you were there, you were there for a long, hard stretch. And the church would occasionally sell these indulgences as a way of making revenue. Think about 1517. Pope Leo X has really been, been financially damaged by a lot of things. He's been engaged in wars that have drained the coffers. He's commissioned some of the greatest artists in the Western world to uh, build St. Peter's, decorate St. Peter's, uh, build the Vatican. The Pope is essentially bankrupt, but an opportunity comes his way. There is a bishop, Albrecht of Mainz, in Germany, who has two bishoprics. He's a bishop of two places. Being a bishop is a great thing because it brings tax-raising powers with it. You can make money out of being a bishop. And he wants to be a bishop of a third place to increase his revenue yet further. But church law says you can only be a bishop of two places unless you buy a special license from the church that will allow you to add the third title. So Albrecht uh, approaches the Pope and the Pope says, sure, you can buy this third, a license for a third bishopric. Albrecht borrows money from a German banking house to buy, pay for the license that he gets from the Pope. And then to pay off the, the debt incurred by borrowing this money, 
The Pope grants him permission to raise an indulgence in his territories, to sell an indulgence, to sell people time off purgatory within his territory. And half the money from the indulgence will go to the Pope and half the money will go to paying off the interest and capital on the loan. So it's a great deal for the Pope. You know, the Pope wins both ways. He gets paid for the license and he's top slicing 50% of the revenue from the indulgence. It's a great deal. Uh, my son, my youngest son is at Georgetown University in, in Washington. Uh, you know, you walk around Georgetown, it's a very wealthy institution. And you know, I think, you know, never bet against the, against the Catholic Church in a real estate or a financial deal. They do it exceptionally well and have been doing it exceptionally well for 1,500 years. Uh, and here's a great example. What could possibly go wrong? Martin Luther will go wrong. man called Tetzel, a Dominican friar, starts making his way up through Germany. I keep saying Germany, but really it's the Holy Roman Empire. After the, the Roman Empire collapses, uh, uh, 9th, 10th century, it sort of reformulates as the Holy Roman Empire. Really the, the lands of Central uh, Europe, the German-speaking lands of Central Europe, uh, Tetzel starts making his way up uh, through these lands towards, well, ultimately it would be towards uh, Wittenberg in Electoral Saxony where, where Luther is. Uh, and he sells these indulgences. He's got some pretty powerful sales pitches. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. We may laugh at that, but that's a powerful sales pitch. If you believe in Purgatory and you believe that your loved ones are languishing there, that's a powerful sales pitch. You know, the, the best indulgent salesmen today are, are actually the Protestants, I think. Um, how do con men fund their multi-million dollar ministries on the Christian channel, on the television? Because there's always somebody who will believe something can give you money for it. It doesn't matter how stupid it is. Uh, and you know, I often look at these men living lavish lifestyles and thinking, uh, you know, who funds it? Probably poor people on credit cards. They probably fund these lavish lifestyles. Um, just as an aside, I think there's a good argument to say that a, a pastor should never, should never live uh, at above the average level of his congregation. No problem with a, with a pastor being paid uh, a, a, a really healthy living wage, uh, particularly if he's in a, a very wealthy congregation. Why, why shouldn't he live at the average level of his congregation? But I don't think a pastor should live hundreds of thousands of dollars above the average level of his congregation. When I hear of pastors earning 800000 a year and more, I, you know, who's, who's not corrupted by that? Uh, that's not to say if you earn that money as a lawyer, you know, you have to answer for your sins on the day of judgment <laughs> as a lawyer. But, uh, but for a pastor, I think that's corrupting. That level of money is corrupting because it comes from the congregation. And it's, it's a problematic sum. But anyway, Tetzel winds his way north. He's not allowed into Saxony, into electoral Saxony, because Luther's boss, a man called Frederick the Wise, who will protect Luther and in some ways is the man that guarantees the success of the Reformation because he won't hand Luther over to the authorities. Interestingly enough, though, he never meets Martin Luther, never has any direct contact with him, so he's always able to have that level of plausible deniability. If you've ever been to Wittenberg, that would have involved huge effort because they must have passed each other in the street. There's only one street. They've got to have passed each other, but never meet. 
That's why in the, in the movie, the Luther, the movie at the end, they can't quite pull it off. They have to have Luther meeting Frederick the Wise at the end of the movie because it's Hollywood. In actual fact, Frederick the Wise never had any direct contact with Martin Luther. But Frederick the Wise, Luther, who become Luther's great protector, doesn't allow Tetzel into Electoral Saxony because he's got his own collection of relics, you know, bits of the true cross and bits and pieces of saints. And he doesn't want the indulgence trade detracting from his own collection of relics. But the problem Luther faces is that his people cross the river and buy them elsewhere. And that's an important, you know, it's a, that's an important pastoral lesson that I kind of learned the hard way. And that is, it doesn't matter how safe you keep your own church in terms of, of teaching. People will always be crossing the river. Uh, I made a, I made a, I, I took a shot uh, uh, six or eight months ago at um, that terrible book, Jesus Calling. Uh, you know, the book where Jesus whispers sweet nothings into the lady, to the lady and she, uh, she'd written them down. And uh, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, did a brilliant review of it online. And Kathy Keller's a very, I, I, she seems a very gracious and nice lady. When she writes a savage review of a book, it's got to be a really bad book. Uh, I'm, I made some comment about this, and two ladies in my congregation grabbed me up and said, well, we use that book in our devotions. What's the problem? And I gently told them what I thought the problem was and directed them to, to better material that they both now, now use. But that was a sobering reminder that people cross the river. Doesn't matter what you tell people, they'll watch the Christian channel. They'll buy the wrong books and read them and believe them. Um, Luther faces the fact that his people cross the river. And if you've seen Luther the movie, there's that great moment when the, the girl with the young baby meets him in the street and Luther sort of says to her, uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if this ever happened, but it, the, the movie makes the point beautifully. The, Luther asks the girl, did you use the money to buy, was it food or shoes for the child? And she says, no, no, I bought something much better. And she pulls out this indulgence. And so I bought an indulgence with it. And Luther sort of turns away in the movie with a scowl on his face. And you know that, you know, the Reformation's about to happen. It's all about to go down. Uh, Luther has to make a stand against indulgences because it's damaging his people. Why is it damaging his people? This is, where, this is the sort of where I'll bring things to a close today. Luther believes in indulgences in 1517. He does believe in indulgences. The 95 Theses Against Indulgences are not an attack on indulgences so much as what he thinks is an abusive use of them. What's the problem then with the sale of indulgences for Luther? Well, look at it this way. I could, uh, I could go home uh, this weekend and after this weekend and find that one of my sons has come home, borrowed my car without my permission and has totaled it. And I could say to him, you totaled my car, that's a disgrace. And he could laugh in my face and he said, yeah, but I had fun, Dad. Here's the keys back. Oh, and uh, by the way, you know, here's, uh, here's five grand. Should cover the cost of your car. And he walks away. That's what Luther fears is going on with the indulgences as he sees them being sold in 1517. Think of another scenario. I come home and I find that my son has done exactly that and he's totaled my car. And I say to him, well, how much have you got in your life savings? And he says, well, I've got $5,000. And I say, okay, if you're really sorry, you give, me a, you give me every penny of your life savings. And then I'll know that you're truly sorry for what you've done. And he hands the money over. And the money becomes a sign, a sign that he's been truly repentant. You know, I think we live in an era where we, 
where forgiveness comes, in all, comes pretty easy. You know, all you've got to do is stand up and say, sorry, I made a mistake, and everybody immediately forgives you. Now, there's an element of biblical truth in when somebody asks for forgiveness, we're to forgive them. But we're also, I think, to look for signs that there's, they're genuinely asking for forgiveness and not simply using a magic word. Luther begins the 95 Theses saying that when our Lord says repent, he means that the whole of life should be one of repentance. Luther's problem is that the grace of God is being traded on the open market for cash without it having any connection to the heart of the individual whatsoever, a change of heart in the individual. And that's why Luther launches his 95 Theses against indulgences. And irony of ironies, this, if you read the 95 Theses, you, you, many of the, of the statements Luther makes there will be incomprehensible. Unless you have some reasonable background in some late medieval theology, a lot of what he says just doesn't seem to make any sense. We're not quite sure what he means. It's a very tedious tract. It becomes stunningly successful. It's translated, it's printed, it becomes this popular pamphlet. The time is just ripe for the church to start taking hits from people. And Luther's little tract is what does that. And underlying that tract is his great changes in understanding of God. Only the death of the Son of God incarnate is sufficient to purchase God's grace for people. And that then raises the question of, where do I find this gracious God? Yeah, it's great. I find him in Jesus. But Jesus isn't here anymore. Jesus is gone. I don't see him walking through the door this morning. Where is Jesus? And that brings me then to the topic of my next lecture, which will be the Reformation theology of preaching. Uh, and I think that that is significant not just for preachers, but for hearers of the word too, as I shall try to make out at the start of that lecture. Got a few minutes for questions. Uh, if you want to throw, uh, if you, are there any questions uh, coming up, please feel free to ask uh, at this point. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I think there, there, there can be a tendency sometimes for, you know, you know, somebody's dying of cancer, and you get the well, it's God's will. Well, I think Luther, and I'm and I'm with Luther on this, would have a more nuanced way of putting it. Sure, nothing happens outside of God's control. But let's not forget that in, in, in an ultimate sense, sin and the consequences of sin were never God's will. Having said that, what we have to say, okay, so what has God done to... If we, if we think of those two truths, God is sovereign in control, and sin and the consequences of sin were never, in, were never part of God's original plan. How do we hold those two things together? Well, how does God exert control over evil? By subverting it. Yes, the death from cancer is a terrible thing. And we are to lament and we are to mourn because death is not meant to be there. Christ himself weeps outside the tomb of Lazarus, but immediately goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And what Luther would say is, we, you, the cross is the, is, the, is the ultimate revelation of the fact that God can take the, su the supreme evil of fallen human existence, the death of the very Son of God himself, and transform it into the gateway into paradise. 
So I, I think what Luther actually opens up there is, is a way of pastorally addressing the problem of evil in a way that doesn't indulge in trite pieties. Well, it was God's will, so we shouldn't worry about it. That recognizes the, the pain and agony of the fallen world, and yet doesn't allow that pain and agony to have the final word. I'm just reading a manuscript of a book that's coming out. It's, it's, not, it's written by a man called Todd Billings, who's a Reformation scholar. Todd is a young man of maybe, maybe he's 40, 41. He's dying of incurable myeloma. He has a young family, and he's written this amazing book, um, uh, Praise Through Lament, which is essentially his reflections on him dying and leaving his family behind, uh, given his absolute commitment to the sovereignty of God. And this is a very Luther kind of book, I think. It's hard to read because I can't imagine how I would cope in his circumstances, looking at his family and knowing that he's got to leave them behind. But he brings out beautifully there, one thing he does, he said he hates it when people you know, pat him on the shoulder and say, well, don't worry, it's God's will. It's all under control. He says, look, look to the Psalms, look to the book of Job. There is confusion and pain there, but ultimately resolved through the cross. And that, I think, is where Luther is and what I was trying to bring out at, at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, by, uh, academics debate about exactly when, Lu you know, first of all, it depends on what you mean by Luther being fully reformational, uh, uh, but I think that by the time we get to 1518, 1519, the practice of indulgences is by that point seen by him as wrong. Some of it is to do with, he's not yet, in 1517, I don't think he believes in justification by grace through faith. I think what he believes in at that point is justification by grace through humility. That what saves is an utter despair in oneself and throwing oneself on the mercy of Christ. That's very close to justification by grace through faith. Justification by grace through faith has that more positive trust aspect to it that's yet to emerge. Uh, but I think by the time we get to 1518, 1519, that note is being struck and at that point I think the, the indulgence thing is, is, is done. But Luke, what Luther's really saying is, you know, if, if what Tetzel is saying is true, if the Pope does have the power to release people simply through a cash transaction from purgatory, then the Pope should simply release people. So Tetzel can't be telling the truth. And when the Pope hears what Tetzel's saying, he'll close him down. There's a lot of things in the 95 Theses that I think we read as criticisms of the Pope. But I don't think Luther intended them that way. I think what he was saying was, if what this guy's saying is true, then the Pope would be doing this. And we know the Pope's a good guy and the Pope isn't doing this. Therefore, Tetzel must be lying about the position. The interesting thing is, when word gets back to Rome that Luther's questioning the, the, the use of indulgences, the pope, the pope does that most Presbyterian of things. He establishes a committee to find out what the church's teaching on indulgences is, because he doesn't know. Um, it's complete chaos. I mean, the, the late medieval church is far more chaotic theologically than we imagine, such that it's almost amazing that Luther's ever done for heresy because they don't, they don't have definitions. They don't have any view of justification. They don't like the fact that Luther's chipping away at their notions of authority. That's what they get him for in the end. 
but they don't have a position on justification until the 1540s. So Luther can't be heretical on justification until after his death, which is ironic. There was a question over here, yeah. Yeah. So is, is there anything in that rivalry? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's very interesting that in the early stage of the Reformation, there's definite order rivalry. The Dominicans, that there's this weird uh, event that takes place at the Augustinian monastery in Dresden, where Luther is invited, I think in 1518, to a party in Dresden at, uh, at this monastery. And uh, a, a Dominican monk hides behind a curtain and writes down all the stuff that Luther says. And Luther liked to drink. And the more he drank, the more fun he was. Uh, um, he was not a nasty drunk. He was fun. And uh, the more he drinks, the more eloquent he gets about the papacy and the problems in the church. And all this is written down by the Dominican and then sent to Rome as a report. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of his early enemies are Dominicans. And I think, absolutely, it's, it's the equivalent of... Well, I, I believe this is a college football state. It's the equivalent of college football. There are tribes and rivalries here. Was, uh, had Augustine, St. Augustine, kind of been relegated to the bottom of the heap then? Uh, and that, uh, that's a real... That's, that's a really good question. Augustine, the problem with Augustine in the Middle Ages is twofold. One, it's very difficult to get hold of complete books for educational purposes because they're expensive to produce. So... The, the textbooks in the Middle Ages, what they call books of sentences that contained extracted quotations from the great writers of the early church. When you extract a quotation from context, it becomes more ambiguous. Its meaning is perhaps not as clear. So although all medieval theologians were Augustinian in that the books of sentences they used contained more quotations from Augustine than anybody else, they didn't always know what he meant. Second complication is the Second Council of Orange uh, 6th century, I think, which was where Augustine's views of predestination were kind of codified and approved by the church, they lost the paperwork. They lost the canons of the Council of Orange during the Middle Ages. So nobody knew how predestination was understood, really, by Augustine. So by the time you get to Luther's day, they're all Augustinians, and they all believe contradictory things. Then you have the inventing of the printing press, and you have the rise of this literary movement, which we now call humanism. It's really a man going back to ancient sources. You have the production of these great complete books. And suddenly, people are able to argue about what Augustine really meant. And certainly at Wittenberg, before Luther explodes onto the Reformation stage, we know that the, 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 you know, the faculty there were discussing the works of Augustine. It was like an Augustine study group. So... The rediscovery of Augustine through having access to complete volumes of him, absolutely vital to the way the Reformation develops. And one of the things you didn't want to do in the 16th century was have a new idea. You know, we, we live in a very different age. Originality was a sign of being wrong. So the reformers and their opponents were always arguing about how they could trace their thought back in, in church history. And Calvin uses the phrase, uh, Augustinus totus noster, which means... Augustine is completely ours. The reformers tried to, to claim Augustine as fully theirs. He was, I mean, Augustine is an interesting figure. Catholics can certainly claim a lot of precedent from Augustine as well. But on the grace issue, Augustine is vital to Protestants. So he was not relegated to the bottom of the pile. He was highly respected. It's just that nobody really knew what he said. 
Maybe time for one more before the break. Yeah. I think you're alluding to the, in, in the 17th century there is a revival of, August, of, of, of the writings of Augustine within the Catholic Church led by a man called Jansenius who is the Bishop of Ypres uh, and uh, he spawned a movement called the Jansenists and the Jansenists were very good on the issue of predestination and election. They were still Roman Catholic, still very sacramental, but they, they generated a, a... The Jansenists and the Jesuits fought a similar battle in the Catholic Church to that between Calvinists and Arminians in the Reformed Church. Uh, and the, there are a lot of parallels and even some borrowing of, of literature between particularly the Jesuits and the Arminians. Church-wise, the, the difference is that in, in Protestantism, the Calvinists win and the Arminians lose, certainly in the 17th century. In Catholicism, the Jesuits win, the Arminian side win, and the Jansenists lose. The most famous man associated with Jansenism, and one of my favorite Christian writers, is Blaise Pascal, the, the mathematician and physicist, who's also a Christian. And he wrote, uh, he wrote a book called The Provincial Letters, which is comic satire of the Jesuits. He had to do it anonymously, because he'd certainly have been executed if they'd traced it back to him. And he also started to work on this massive apology for the Christian faith. Died while it was still in a fragmented form, and it now comes down to us as the pensée or the, or the thoughts. And it's one of the books I, I recommend students to read. It's a brilliant, provocative discussion of Christianity. And uh, Pascal was very closely associated with the Jansenists, and they brought him around to being uh, an Augustinian. Interesting, John Owen, the English Puritan, at some point in his anti-Arminian writings, he makes the comment that he's read all of the literature in the exchanges between the Jansenists and the Jesuits and intends to write a history of the conflict between the Jansenists and the Jesuits, but he never does. It's a great shame. It would have been a fun book to, to, to have read, but it's, it's interesting that Protestants were very aware of the debates about grace that were going on in Catholicism. Um, again, we need to be wary of thinking of Protestantism and Catholicism as sort of sealed off from each other. Both sides are very much aware of what the other side's writing and borrowing very positively from them on, on certain issues, not on all. You know, Owen's not going to borrow from the Roman Catholics on the sacraments, but he will borrow from them extensively on, on issues of election and grace. 